it's no surprise that we see rising protests all over the world against the increase in the cost of living, while at the same time, central banks and governments tell us that there is no inflation. So what we will see in the next few years is the path that Japan dictated a few years ago, the path of stagnation. The entire central bank and government-led consensus is trying to tell you is don't save, spend a lot, enter into a lot of debt, it doesn't matter, take a lot of risk. Well, the number one recommendation is don't do it. Printing money is something that has been going on forever, and it does end badly. What we find it very difficult is to understand when will it end, and that is the problem. Hello, Daniel. What do you think of this year so far? Well, this year obviously is a, is an evident shock for almost everyone. It's been uh, uh, started as a year of complacency, a year in which uh, everybody was talking about synchronized growth and uh, uh, massive recovery and uh, very positive messages. Then we got COVID-19 and uh, we're dealing with the aftermath of the of the virus and the challenges that it brings. So it's going to be a, it's going to be an interesting few years from now. You've been writing a lot of books, and I think there was a, there's the recent one which came out. How has that been? You know, has the Corona put a bit of a challenges for the release? I have the the luxury of having a very loyal uh, reader base, so I have not suffered from the coronavirus in terms of sales or in terms of the of the decision to to publish the book. The book came out when it was supposed to come out. Uh, it was obviously not written with the COVID-19 crisis in mind, but it touches upon a lot of the things that we hear these days uh, as magic solutions to address the pandemic. More government intervention, massive money printing, huge transfers of wealth, etc. No? So actually the book is doing, I'm glad, very well because it uh, it talks about all of the things that uh, so many people are, are talking about right now and it uh, discusses them at length. Can you explain a bit you know what the book is about and, and you know how can it help uh, people who are coping with uh, the situation at the moment? Well this book is called Freedom or Equality because in the last few years we have had a constant uh, and demagogic uh, type of uh, incessant type of uh, propaganda telling us that all of the problems of humanity were problems of inequality. And it's called freedom or equality to show that the, the interventionist measures that are being sold constantly in the media and in some, uh, in some outlets, etc., as uh, the, what we should do are actually very dangerous propositions. So what this book touches upon, it touches upon the fallacy of the theories of uh, Thomas Piketty about uh, the magic increase in wealth. It uh, touches upon the uh, ideas that more intervention from governments uh, is, uh, is the solution to the challenges that we that we live right now and it's a book about solutions it's always as all of my books a book that gives feasible 
and logical solutions to the challenges that we have right now without falling into the trap of interventionism and socialism. So if those are not the answers to the, solu- to the, to the situation at hand, uh, what should we do? You know, what is the better way? It's a great question. Is the, the, the idea of what should we do you, tends to include in the, in the question sort of what should governments do? And in many cases, the idea that governments have to do something about the issues that they have been completely unable to manage or to prevent is, is dangerous in itself. What should we do? We basically are doing as households, as companies, uh, a lot of the things that need to be done. The, the, the growth in innovation, the growth in technology, precisely what is allowing us right now to have this conversation, the, uh, the, the prudent saving, the management of the crisis is being absolutely, I would say, admirable from the side of companies and from the side of households. Businesses have adapted to the situation in a way in which governments have not. So the, the, the idea is precisely that it's not up to governments to do something precisely because they don't suffer the consequences of doing it wrong, which is what they have done. The idea is that if governments that are supposed to have the best information about the healthcare and about the uh, health environment and are connected with the uh, World Healthcare Organization, etc., have been completely incompetent, not just at addressing the risk of the pandemic, but at managing the pandemic, we should not give them more power. We should give them less power. Has this actually been something which has been already going on for decades and we just now see it you know, in our face because things are quite compressed and, and you know, happening so quickly? Or is this something new? Well, no situation is completely new and no situation is completely uh, the same as before. This crisis has absolutely nothing to do with the 2008 crisis, yet it has similar patterns. No? We are living the 2009 style of the previous crisis, which is the idea that governments have to massively spend, the idea that governments have to, and central banks, have to increase liquidity and inject massive amounts of money into the economy in order to address a slowdown or a crisis. And that is similar. But on the other side, there are numerous things that are completely different. This is the first time ever in which we have a crisis because of the government decision to uh, unilaterally shut down the entire economy. This is a monster experiment that has had and will have huge long-term implications. So the idea that uh, governments are the solution to a problem that they have created, it's governments that have completely misguidedly decided to completely shut down the economy thinking that it was only going to be like a vacation, something that only a bureaucrat would think. Um, is, is has created very, very important ramifications. Those ramifications will last for quite a long time. And companies, on the other hand, 
businesses are adapting in a way that is absolutely amazing, admirable. Think about this. With the government shutdown of the economy, what we have found ourselves is that there has been absolutely no disruption to supplies. This is absolutely fantastic and shows how amazing capitalism is, how, how well capitalism adapts to situations that should not have occurred to start with, no? That should not have been dichotomy between health and the economy. The governments that have managed the pandemic in, uh, in the best way have actually done and taken all of the measures to preserve the business fabric at its maximum level, the case of South Korea, Taiwan, etc., Singapore. You've been also uh, talking quite a bit about central banks and monetary policies. What is the central bank trap? The central bank trap is that central banks ignore the risks that they generate in uh, creating massive bubbles in financial assets by injecting huge amounts of liquidity and lowering rates all the time. And then when those bubbles burst, they become the enablers of the next bubble. So they become trapped by their own policies. If they normalize monetary policy, then bubbles start to burst and then they create a financial crisis. So we need to constantly be injecting liquidity and lowering rates in order to preserve bubbles that they have created with their policy. So when was the first bubble and, and you know, how long has this been going on? What do you mean the first bubble? Well, you, you just stated that uh, basically central banks are um, they just uh, inflating and putting a, a bit bigger bubble after the previous one. So what's the first uh, in the chain? Well, we've had, we've had a few, haven't we? We all know the tech bubble. We all know the housing bubble. We know different sub, uh, not global bubbles in different, uh, in different economies. Iceland lived its massive uh, real estate bubble as well. Uh, we've seen usually bubbles tend to happen in assets or in uh, financial assets in which we as investors or as uh, citizens believe that there is no risk. There's only one way in which you can increase to extraordinary levels your exposure to a risky asset and that is if you believe that there is no risk. Who gives you the idea that there is no risk? The central bank by lowering rates and increasing liquidity. Why are they doing this? Basically, they just have only one play card in the deck. They're just doing the same thing with the different names and with different methods, but it's it's always printing more money. Yeah. Well, obviously they do it because it's what they do. It's monetary policy. No, monetary policy it tends to be created to benefit governments and the only way in which you benefit governments is by increasing money supply and lowering rates. Governments are the most indebted and the most uh, exposed to the money creation. The first recipients of money are governments. No? So central banks defend the position of governments relative to the position of savers and real wages. Central banks are not doing that because they don't know it. 
they do it because they believe that the collateral damages created by monetary policy, like for example, elevated valuations in stock markets or in bond markets, are acceptable collateral damages of a greater good, which is that governments finance themselves at very low rates and uh, the sovereign debt remains uh, very expensive in price. That means very, uh, very low in terms of uh, yield, isn't it? So central banks are basically just creating a framework that massively benefits governments and they hope that by aiding governments and by aiding the financial markets and the effect that is called the wealth effect, you believe that you are richer because your house might be worth more, that kind of thing. They believe that that incentivizes consumption, incentivizes uh, confidence in the economy and confidence in further investment. They're wrong. So basically, they're using short-term measures uh, to create an illusion of growth. Not, yeah, not an illusion of growth. There is growth. The question is what type of growth there is. We have seen in the last decade how we get out of crisis much slower and with a much higher level of debt. By increasing liquidity and lowering interest rates, you don't disincentivize debt. You incentivize people to take more debt. But it's also the inflation that, you know, the inflation uh, is not really properly taken into account. And, and, and this is another way of actually paying taxes by higher prices, but, you know, it's, it's not really actual crowd. Inflation is taxation without legislation, Milton Friedman used to say. No? And inflation obviously exists. So what central banks and governments tend to tell us all of the time is that there is no problem with their policy because there is no inflation. Where does that come from? That comes from a headline CPI, uh, Consumer Price Index, that massively dilutes the real effect of uh, inflation in people's salaries and in people's purchasing power of their salaries. So it's no surprise that we see rising protests all over the world against the increase in the cost of living, while at the same time, central banks and governments tell us that there is no inflation. So we've been hopping from a bubble or bubble to another one. Uh, I was actually just uh, starting to wonder that, you know, going through the 80s, there was also the, you know, the stock market. And, and then, then in the early 90s, there was the Japanese, you know, market was the first one to go to the deflation and still there probably today. So how many bubbles there are still to go? Oh, no, what's no, no, the, no. the bubbles can last for a very long time and they can and they can repeat themselves. It doesn't mean that there's one bubble, it bursts and it doesn't happen again. The tech bubble burst and we are a real estate bubble burst. And we are back in a real estate bubble in many markets. So the idea that bubbles burst and then you move on to something different and there is a finite number of them is simply 
in, in, incorrect, no? But basically, there must be some limit that uh, you know the printing of money. You know, we we coming that you know you just cannot endlessly print more money. That that's what history been telling us. You know, there's an end for governments to do that. There's only one way in which that ends is with the conscious decision of citizens to stop utilizing a currency because they don't trust it anymore. Huh? That can take a very long time. The policy of governments is, 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 and central banks is reckless but calculated, if that makes any sense. In the sense that, for example, you in your country, me in my country, we seem to be willing to accept a 2% inflation every year. 2% inflation every year is a lot, okay? But there is almost a quid pro quo that governments are willing to steal a little bit from your pocket because we collectively perceive that there is some worth to it. See what I mean? Hmm? No. When does it go? When does it stop? It stops when that quid pro quo stops working. And the other thing which has happened, uh, was it like uh, Switzerland, uh, Swiss Central Bank was pretty much the last one, uh, you know, holding the fort. And, and when they joined uh, the band with the other central banks, and now everybody is just basically printing money and there's, there's nothing, no anchors left. It also means that everybody needs to be in sync, more or less. You cannot stop printing money because you're currency will appreciate too much uh, against the other ones. So are we actually speeding at the, at, at the pace of the, the pretty much the fastest one to print money? Or, you know, is there some changes expected to happen in this decade in, in, in the level? Because it, it sort of certainly feels like that in the, in the last decades, the things have been accelerating and, and you know, bubbles are quicker and more drastic. Mm, Financial crises are more uh, frequent, but they're less severe. That is what tends to happen. The other thing that happens is that um, when everybody starts to play a currency war, which is basically what we're talking about, we're talking about banks, central banks and governments that don't want their currency to strengthen, huh? And the reason why they don't want their currency to strengthen is not because it has any benefits on the economy. A strong uh, currency is a signal of a strong economy. No, I think Germany, at least, you know, still a few years back. Yeah, it is. So the reason why governments don't want that is because the only one out of the different economic agents that benefits from a weak currency is the government that prints it. It has the monopoly of, of printing money and is the first recipient of that money. The other thing which has been happening quite a while already as well uh, is that central banks are buying private assets. Mm -hmm. What do you think of that? It comes as part of what I call the nationalization of the economy. No? The reason why central banks are buying private assets is because they are... Um, gradually becoming the key deciders of where the economic system goes. So 
when the Central Bank of Japan or the Central Bank of Europe buys bonds from companies and equities from companies, they are actually taking gradually steps to nationalize through the back door those companies. No? Um, obviously, you might say, well, that is not true because they continue to have a majority of um, private shareholders, which is true. However, if you look at the dependence on central bank policy, that also dictates their strategy. So by when the central bank buys your bond and your equity, what it is literally doing is almost transferring a private asset into the uh, realm of public ownership. And by public ownership, I mean government control, not ownership from, quote-unquote, the people. How do you see that in the market? Is that, uh, are they already a significant player? Are they active player in the market? Uh, we also obviously been talking about geopolitics, uh, you know, China, you know, US, there's a lot of tension in different uh, parts of the world and different uh, trading blocks. Um, this probably is one of the weapons in the arsenal and it's going to be used as well. So what's going to happen in the, in the next few years? Oh, what we will see is an acceleration of it. Financial repression is always followed by more financial repression. No one has ever said in a government or in a central bank, oh, we have uh, too much spending and therefore we need us to reduce spending, reduce debt and uh, take the foot off the pedal. No, there's always an incentive to increase exposure. So. What we will see in the next few years is the path that Japan dictated a few years ago, the path of stagnation. So what's the future of Japan? The population is going down. Can you get away from the, that situation, the monetary situation, the economic situation, the, the overall situation in Japan? Well, they can. They can. They, don't. They, they will not. There is absolutely there is no political party in Japan. That, is, that has the slightest minimal policy geared towards reducing government expenditure, reducing deficits, and reducing the dependence on the central bank. None. So the future is more. The future is not less. And it will happen. You know, we, you and I are talking with uh, Japan on a debt net debt to GDP of about 230% that is going to go to almost 300. We will see that. We definitely will. But the, the key point is how is what you are trying to, or what you have been saying all the time, which is how long can this last? It can last for a pretty long time. That doesn't mean that it doesn't have negative consequences. The fact that it lasts tends to be viewed by interventionists as by the interventionist uh, commentators as a proof that it doesn't matter and that deficits can go anywhere that they want and debt can, is not a problem and that governments can issue all of the debt that they want. That is false. They, there are important negative consequences. You just mentioned that Japan, uh, the first problem in Japan is a problem of stagnation, low consumption. Citizens in Japan are not stupid. 
So they know that the purchasing power of their currency is going to be uh, is going to be debased by central bank policy. They know that their real wages are going to be worth less. So consumption is eroded, investment is eroded, debt goes up. You basically zombify the economy. Right? It can last for a while, and it does have very important negative consequences. What is your advice for regular people? You know, you are living in Japan or you're living in a place where these are happening. What should you do? The first thing you should do is to avoid the trap. You know, because what 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 the the entire central bank and government led uh, consensus is trying to tell you is don't save, spend a lot, enter into a lot of debt. It doesn't matter. Take a lot of risk. Well, the number one recommendation is don't do it. Okay, be prudent. Be prudent because it is not true that you can take all of that amount of risk, and at the end of the day, the central bank or the government is going to bail you out because that doesn't happen. The second recommendation is to invest in assets that are bulletproof in a bull and in a bear market. So when you invest in assets, invest in things that you know, not in things that they tell you. Yeah? Things that you know that are bulletproof in a bear and in a bull market. Like for example, gold or like uh, the companies that uh, are generating the highest levels of free cash flow, not the ones that are considered blue chips. The third recommendation is to uh, is to be skeptical. Is to be skeptical because what you're going to hear all of the time is that this time is different, and this time is never different. Are there some regions or countries or places which are better than others? So you know, if that's an option that you know you well, move other places, so can you recommend some some you know good sure. economies or good places to be? No, oh, sure there are. Sure there are. There are economies that are prudent, that don't have a lot of debt, that don't have a lot of risk attached to their system. We have some in the Eurozone, in the European Union. We have them all over the world. I think that ultimately the, 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 the issue with monetary policy and with risk is that it's not a game of who wins, it's a game of who loses first. That's why, despite the aggressive actions of the Federal Reserve, the dollar tends to continue to be strong and a world reserve currency. The reason being that uh, the Federal Reserve is the only central bank in the world that pays attention to the real demand of dollars when increasing or decreasing money supply. That is not the case in others. But is it also true that others are more or less following the U.S.? That's what's been happening like the last hundred uh, years. I, so don't, I, I, I won't agree with that. I won't agree with that. I think that it tends to be perceived that other central banks are copying the Federal Reserve, but they're not. No. Think about, for example, the European Central Bank. The European Central Bank uh, has implemented negative rates, the Federal Reserve has not. The European Central Bank has increased its balance sheet way above 
the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve's balance sheet is about 32%. The European Central Bank is about 53% of GDP of the Eurozone. Uh, the European Central Bank has, has implemented a number of measures of uh, asset purchases that the Federal Reserve has not. So I disagree. I don't think that everybody's copying the Fed. I think that the, in broad terms, the Fed and everybody else is doing, as you said before, precisely what has happened all the time since the days in which an emperor in Rome decided that it was a good idea to put a little bit of, 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 of metal in, uh, in the gold and silver coins in order to pay higher salaries to the soldiers and kill the economy with it. So the, 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 the printing money is something that has been going on for, for forever, and it does end badly. But we find it very difficult is to understand when will it end, and that is the problem. Hmm? Is there something we can learn from the history? I, I guess, that, <laughs> um, you know, we as a sort of a generation now have, have had the unfortunate opportunity of uh, realizing that, uh, you know, stuff can happen really quickly. You know, last week you were doing something and next week you, you're not flying at all, maybe for years. Sure. And, and when we're looking back to history, you know, that's people were just preparing, you know, on, on their summer holidays and then World War start, started, uh, you know, a few weeks later. And, you know, just like business as usual till it was not. So um, what we can learn from the previous uh, money printing and minus monetary regimes? Well, I think that young people should stop asking from governments entitlements that cannot be paid. That is the first thing. You know, when we are small, we learn rather quickly that Father Christmas, Santa Claus, we don't know, depends on how you call him or how you call it in different countries, doesn't exist, that it's your parents, okay? And, so, and when we reach a certain age in economy, then we start believing in, in Santa Claus again. We believe in Santa Claus, the government. No, we, we, have, we have eliminated the idea of, we have, of God and the idea of, you know, of, of magic uh, uh, fairy tale things like Santa Claus or the Tooth Fairy and substituted with government. Government can do anything, everything, and all the time for me with no consequence. So what, 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 what young people should do, and they're not doing, to start with, when I talk to my students, or when I see what, how young people are reacting these days, they're not saying, thank you very much, I don't want something that you know you cannot give me. They're saying, yes, please, I want more of that. And therefore, the governments are always going to have a perverse incentive to destroy the purchasing power of the currency and to increase uh, imbalances because, to a certain extent, people are demanding it. When you go to the United States and you hear young people that should be better informed, 
than people like myself. I'm 52 years old. I'm going to be 53. So young people that have all of the information out there huh? and that should be able to understand perfectly the risks and the, and the realities of what history has showed is a disastrous policy. What are they doing? Those people are out there marching, saying that the federal government should print trillions of dollars to give Medicare for all. So it's so so it's very disheartening and very uh, very you know disappointing to see that the younger generations that actually should be the ones saying you're not going to fool me with the old tricks are saying yes please. Fool me with the old tricks and some. Just the other week, I was talking with uh, Per Pulund, and, and we were exactly talking about this point that uh, he was saying that he cannot really blame the, the general public for the ignorance in these matters because they're not really interested of the economics and, and, and stuff like that. But it's it's also the uh, sort of the the people who should be in the know who unfortunately are having the tendencies that they, they don't you know know any better yeah. and one of the one of the ways uh, he was saying that you know where what we should do and and you know basically saying he was saying and well I was saying as well that we need probably an educational revolution you know it's just like that we we're going with economics for example the last hundred years the wrong direction and we now just uh, you know reaping the what we've been sowing you know all those years but it's I come back to the point. Um, it is not a lack of education, it's an excess of uh, ideological education that young people in particular are absorbing like it was Christmas. People are going, you know, young people with all of the information, you can, you, you know, any of, the, of our listeners today, that are younger than I am, have not a wealth, but every possibility of knowing exactly what is going on. And they decide collectively or individually not to learn from history. They prefer to believe in magic. That is a, a conscious decision, and it's not because of lack of information or lack of education, it's because of, of personal decision. Now, there is, you know, if you want to, it's, you know, you were saying before that you, you cannot be blamed for what is going on if, uh, because you're not interested or you don't know about it. Well, you can, actually. You can't blame people for it because they have because the most disadvantaged person in the world today has a device like the one that I'm holding right now in my hand and is constantly accessing information that is completely irrelevant yet does not want to learn about things that matter to them. You go today to any citizen in the world and through Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, uh, you name it. It doesn't matter what type of social media. They know everything about what they want to know. Everything. You're a fan, 
particular singer, you're a, you're a fan of a particular actor or an actress, you know everything to the slightest and most boring detail. Yet you consciously decide not to understand what undermines your uh, economic position, your salary, your then you're basically it's like it's like going out in a to a bad neighborhood with five rolexes in your in your hands and saying steal me and i'm sorry i you know i have students that i've been giving classes in university for it's 15 years now okay my students don't read my students don't read it's almost you mean at all or you mean just some particular things no you know you give a group of students five six books to read in a year they don't read them they just don't do it even if it's something that is going to hurt their grade or something they just don't do it think about this and i don't teach to to first grade i teach in master degrees so what I'm saying is that there is a conscious decision that is affecting uh, the way in which we we perceive the economy that is not just I don't understand or I don't give a damn, dangerous both options, is I willingly decide to let somebody else steal me. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. But that's their decision. Then don't complain. You see, what I can't, you know, when I when I go to to give lectures or to give speeches, and people tell me that deficits don't matter, that governments should spend all that they want in any shape or form that they want, and that that will not have any impact on the economy, I say, fair enough. You deserve what is going to happen to you. It's because you have all of the information out there. To understand that you that that is empirically wrong. You see what I mean? So yeah. I I I actually there is this. And by the way, in education, something has happened in the last twenty years in particular, which is that we have transferred the adolescent years to adulthood. So so we treat ourselves like teenagers. Mm -hmm. When we behave like teenagers in adulthood, if we don't get the salary or the job that we think we deserve, who do we blame? We blame the system. If uh, the government continuously increases its uh, imbalances and then increases our taxes, who do we blame? We blame politicians. We don't blame ourselves for letting them do it. You see what I mean? So, so there is this... Uh, victimism approach that I'm not willing to accept. I know that you know th that actions have consequences, and if you demand governments to take certain actions, they will take them. So the consequences are also uh, something that the person that has voted for those actions is to blame for. So, what's the way out? Doesn't sound too promising for the future. Well, I don't know. When I was a kid, oh, I'm very optimistic about the future. I think that technology and 
the fact that things happen so fast that no government can 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 implement our interventionist measures that 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 avoid people from knowing reality you know that is a positive i mean i remember when i was a kid when i was a kid if i heard something from a politician i would start by questioning it no i would start by saying well you know what i don't i'm going to i, I want to dig deep on this because i'm not going to believe it so that's what 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 uh, people should start doing instead of when they when they get disappointed with mainstream politicians decide to go to somebody that is promising even crazier things they should actually start for once to tell politicians thank you very much for your service step aside step aside a little bit there's plenty of things that politicians and governments can do but not all of them and that's it you mentioned that you you're optimistic about the future and and technology is probably one of the ways to see some blinkering uh, hope there um going back to the you know roots of money and you know bank note well it meant you know there was a you know bank issued notes are we going to have tech notes you know technology companies basically taking over the the monetary policy soon or you know the money and and this is the way out of this situation because i don't personally believe that the politicians and the and the government can stop printing money yeah you don't need you don't need companies you know, you were mentioning uh, because of the famous experiment of facebook's libra no and things like that that never happened uh, you don't need that you need you you already have alternatives to fiat money Yeah. So you referring to Bitcoin or you Bitcoin, you're... Ethereum, different cryptocurrencies. And there will be new ones, there will be different ones, okay? But but they will but but I I don't see uh I see that there is a, a way out in that front. Hmm? What does it take for that uh, to happen? You know, we are not in a mass adoption of Bitcoin. That's the oldest one and the, probably the most robust one. But it's it's not like everybody is using it, uh, even though just saving in Bitcoin seems to be a pretty sweet deal. There is, uh, you know, things take time. We think that because it hasn't happened in two years or in five years, it will never happen because we live in the world of immediacy. You see, and we think that now has to happen now if something is not happening now it will never happen it might and it's a question of time it's you know it's it's not we think about this you and i in this conversation we have been talking about a period of time in history that is an anecdote in human history that is we're talking about the last 70 years 70 that is nothing so the point that i'm trying to make is that things take their time we might not see it in my lifetime you you are younger than i am you might see it i don't know but things take their time that doesn't mean that they will not happen so what i'm sure that i am sure and that's what i explained freedom or equality is that if you don't see it and i don't see it your sons or my sons uh and daughters will live a better 
environment than the one that we live in the same way that we are living a better environment than our parents, even if we complain about it. So basically we're just progressing towards a better future all the time. Yeah, and it will happen. And it will happen. You don't have to sort of, you know, sit and wait for it. You can try to help with our different tools and our different ways and means of, of achieving it. But what the point is that it will happen. Uh, funnily enough, you, you mentioned about the 10 years, you know, like, for example, in Bitcoin's terms, you know, usually the overnight success uh, in startup world is, is like something between 10 to 15 years of, you know, hard grinding and, and really doing, you know, trial by, by errors. So that's probably... It could be that even Bitcoin is going to kick off, you know, in the next 10 years and it's going to happen fast. Whether it's Bitcoin or something else, you know, if you read uh, Frederick von Hayek's The The Denationalization of Money, in that book, what he explains is the, the process of reducing the power of governments in money creation is almost unstoppable. But there will be a vast majority of the currencies that will appear, will disappear. See what I mean? So no. we need to, so we, we need to, you know, it, it's a, uh, if I knew it, okay, you know, I would be a guru and I would invest in it. No, but I, I, I don't know it. I just know. That's what I know. What I know is that never bet against human ingenuity. Because human ingenuity always, always takes us out of problems, progressing and delivering better and more sustainable solutions. What is your favorite word? My favorite word is now. What is your least favorite word? Yesterday. (laughs) What turns you on, creatively, spiritually or emotionally? Rock and roll. What turns you off? Uh, reggaeton. What is your favorite curse word? Bullcrap. What sound or noise do you love? About me laughing. What sound or noise do you hate? Uh, central bank uh, minute uh, speech. Not the, you know, the, the money machine. <laughs> <laughs> what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? What profession would I like to attempt apart from mine? Indeed. Mm-hmm. Well, I think I, 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 I would have been, uh, I would have been interesting to, to pursue a career in entertainment. What profession would you not like to do? What profession I would not like to do for the benefit of humanity is medicine. <laughs> uh, if you could be a co-founder of any startup in any era, which one would you choose? Um, Apple. Can you elaborate a bit why? Huh? And can you elaborate a bit, you know, explain why? I think that Apple has changed so many things in the way that we perceive technology and interaction, human interaction, uh, the 
approach to entertainment, to music, to to uh, design. I think it's been absolutely phenomenal and unequal. Any final words for the audience? Uh, don't give up. Thank you, Daniel. It's, fun. it's been a blast. Absolutely enjoyed a lot. Enjoyed it a lot. It's been great to talk to you and uh, uh, hope that uh, everybody enjoys it as much as I did. By the way, where can they get your latest book and more information about you? You can get my books at Amazon. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. It's at D-L-A-C-A-L-L-E underscore I-A. That's at D-L-A-C-A-L-L-E underscore I-A. You can also watch my videos on my YouTube channel. You can also uh, follow my website. It's quite difficult not to find me. So if you can't find me, you definitely need to try a little bit harder. <laughs> or you can check the episode notes. I will put the links there as well. <laughs> well you can check the episode notes and check the previous and forthcoming episodes. Don't miss this podcast.